an unfortunate downplaying of Christians that has been going on for quite some time. It's not necessarily a current deal. But one of the things that Christians often downplay is the importance and the necessity of doctrine. The importance and the necessity of theology. The word theology simply meaning the study of God. And you go into some churches and words like theology and doctrine are are kind of bad words. They're not really things people are interested in discussion. In fact, sometimes you hear something like doctrine divides. And it's punchy. It's alliterated. right? Doctrine divides. It's kind of clever. And my response to that is, of course doctrine divides. In fact, doctrine is meant to divide. Doctrine properly understood and properly applied in the context of the church at large and in individual churches is certainly meant to divide. So even as we just sang in the church's one foundation, that yeah, the church has been rent asunder and by heresies. We have had schisms. We have had all of these things. And creeds and confessions have been written in order to mitigate against it, in order to make a stand against false doctrine, heresy, and so forth. Let me give you a, a really practical illustration that, that happened just this week in regard to doctrine dividing in my own life. I ran into somebody this week that I run into often enough, and they know that I'm a pastor. And at times they'll ask me how the church is doing. I've told the person, you're more than welcome to come to church, you know, and so forth, that kind of a thing. And um, when I saw him this week, he, he said, uh, how was Easter? And I said, well, it, it went really well. It was really good. And so I said, how was your Easter? And he said, um, well, he said, I went to church, and I sang in the choir, and then I went, we had a meal with family after the service. And I had no idea that he had attended church. Um, he had never told me that he attended church, even when I had said, you're more than welcome to come to Windsor. He didn't say, oh, well, I go to another church. This was the first time I had heard, I go to another church and sing in the choir and all of, the, all of that. And I said, oh, you go to church? I said, well, what church do you go to? And he said, I go to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Ah. In that moment, I'm standing there with him, and it was like there was a wall. We are not the same. We are very different. There was a doctrinal wall that was immediately understood between us. That doesn't mean we're not polite. That doesn't mean we won't see them again or talk with them again. But in no way do we worship the same God. We are divided by doctrine. And that Mormon and I are divided upon the principal doctrine that our passage instructs us on today. And that is in regard to the Trinity. The Trinity. As Orthodox Christians, we believe in the Trinity. Now, if you were to scan your Bible, you would find that the word Trinity is nowhere to be found in your Bibles. You will never see the word Trinity in your Bible. But the concept is absolutely found in your Bible. And Christians for more than 1,800 years have used the word Trinity in our reference to God. Think about the word itself, Trinity. Divide that in two. Tri-unity. 
You have the tri-unity, the trinity. This is such an important thing for us to understand. In fact, when you think about being orthodox believers, we rise and fall on these kinds of doctrines. We believe in the tri-unity. And so we do our best to be extremely clear when discussing all things trinity for the obvious reason that we do not want to misrepresent God. You do not want to misrepresent God. And so we do not believe, when we say the word Trinity, it doesn't mean that we believe in three separate gods. Three independent gods. As though the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, and they're independent from one another. That would be tritheism. That would be a belief in three different gods. Or if we were to deny Christ's eternal existence, thus de- denying Him the, the, the status as God, or teaching that the Holy Spirit is a created being, or that the three members of the Trinity only become the Trinity when they are together, as though they, the three of them are in the same room and thus now they're the council of the Trinity. We do not believe that at all as well. That's called partiality. Sometimes Christians try to illustrate the Trinity by saying things like, well, God is like an egg. You have the shell. You have the yolk. What's the other part? The white. It's not like that. Like, like pastor doesn't even know what an egg is. <laughs> or we might say, well, well, God is like a three-leaf clover. He's on you know, the three different leaves there. Or God is like a water and that he can be a solid, he can be an ice, He could be a liquid as water or it could be a gas, right? And that's kind of like what God is like. The problem with illustrations like this is that they all end up reflecting some kind of great Trinitarian heresy. The reality is there is no earthly illustration that can accurately reflect our God in heaven. We believe as believers, as those who trust in God's Word, We believe in the Godhead. We believe in the Trinity, which consists of Father, Son, and Spirit. They are all co-equal. They are co-eternal. We believe in the distinction of persons within the Trinity. As again, we often sing, we believe in God in three persons, blessed Trinity. But the reality is we have to embrace the mystery of the Trinity. There's no illustration and there's no articulation that is going to perfectly reflect in its total 100% fullness of what the Trinity is, who He is. It, is. it is so difficult to wrap our minds around these. And this is why I'm, I'm trying to be very careful in regard to how I describe it because I don't want to accidentally fall. One of you have come to me up after the service and say, actually, Brandon, you were kind of falling into this over here. You know, we, we have to be very careful in how we describe the Trinity. We have to understand that this is mysterious that the Bible teaches that God exists as one God. They share the same essence. They share the same being. Yet they are distinct in persons. The Bible teaches us that God exists in three persons, shares the same essence, that He is co-eternal and co-equal in power and glory. And we might say, well, I can't understand that. To which I would say, good. Because frankly, if you could understand this, then you would be Him. That only He fully knows and understands who He is in His entirety. 
And so we certainly understand what God's Word reflects. We understand what I've tried to articulate already to you this morning. But there's another significant aspect of the Trinity that we need to understand that is found directly in our passage this morning, and that is what we call perichoresis. And what this means is exactly what Jesus teaches us today. That the Son is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son. We know from elsewhere in God's Word that there is a clear distinction regarding the persons of the Trinity, but we also acknowledge what Jesus says here in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? In other words, we cannot harshly divide the persons of the Trinity. So the Father dwells in the Son and the Spirit. The Son dwells in the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit dwells in the Father and the Son. And so what I'm trying to articulate is that there is a mysterious mutual indwelling with the three persons of the Trinity. So let's explore this passage this morning and seek to understand this better. Remember, we are at the Last Supper. Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples, and he's sitting around this, laying around this table. It's Thursday night. It's only a day before Jesus is going to be crucified. Yet we have several chapters before we get to that. And so what, where we find ourselves is John chapter 14 to verse, to chapter 17 is what we call the upper room discourse. Now, the apostle John is the only one who records this for us. And so we're going to be here for, some months, very likely, as we work through this slowly together. And so you remember that Jesus began saying, don't let your heart be troubled, right? Believe in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to God but by me. You remember that Thomas reacts in verse 5, and he says, well, we don't know the way that you're going. And that's when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus makes it clear that you cannot go to the Father without him because he is the way, the truth, and the life. But look beginning in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Now what is Jesus implying here? Again, imagine this scene. He's sitting there. All of his disciples are lounging around this table. He's beginning to teach them regarding these things. And what is he implying when he said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also? that whatever his disciples understood about him and his father in that moment, it wasn't enough. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And you can say, man, how can that be? Like these disciples had professed Christ. They had baptized people. They had worked miracles. They had gone out and preached the gospel. They had seen the demons leave people. They had even seen Lazarus come out of the grave. And they had said things like, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But even at this point, whatever their knowledge level was, it appears that it was not yet enough. It appears that they did not yet have the fullness of understanding in regard to this mutual indwelling between the Father and the Son that they would eventually have. They did not have it yet. And imagine what a patient teacher Jesus must have been to be with these hobos for 12 years, or three years, 12 hobos for three years. And they still didn't get it all. I think it's a great example for all of us, isn't it? 
It's a great example for pastors. It's a great example for Sunday school teachers. It's a great example for parents. It's a great example for grandparents. Be patient. That those who are sitting under you are not going to understand everything that you understand as soon as you say it. You're going to teach, and you're going to teach, and you're going to teach, and they're still going to ask questions that make you go, seriously? But Jesus is so patient, and he cares for his disciple, Philip. And he says, if you had known me. And that has to be jolting to hear if you're a disciple. Like if you're John in that moment and you're laying on Jesus' chest and you're hearing him say that, you're thinking, really? If you had known me, if you're Peter who had said in chapter 13, I will die for you, Jesus. If you had known me, Peter. Jesus says that if they had known Christ, that they would also know the Father. But notice the movement in the rest of Jesus' words in verse 7. He says, from now on you know him and have seen him. So you see here that knowledge is what leads us to sight. Knowledge leads to sight. You know him, thus you have seen him. We need to make sure that we have the proper order. It's what we know first that leads to seeing properly. If you don't know all of the facts, you cannot see the situation correctly. It's the same situation here. They needed to understand correctly so that they could see correctly. You notice how Philip interjects in verse 8. Notice there. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. What's, what's Philip saying here? He's saying, Jesus, we've, we've seen it all. We've seen the works. We've, we've heard the teaching. We've seen the healed lepers. We've seen you touch people's eyes and then they could see again. Again, in John chapter 11, we've seen our old buddy Lazarus come out of the grave. We've seen it all. But there's one more thing that we want to see, and then we'll be satisfied. Show us the Father. Now, this seems like a fine question to ask, at least on a certain level. Why? Because if Philip was thinking about it, he could go to Exodus 33 that we read this morning. And he could say, well, Moses asked to see God. The great Moses, he, he wanted to see God. He wanted to catch a glimpse of God as he came by. Moses told the Lord, show me your glory. And so Philip's request really isn't all that far off. Philip wants to see a piece of what Moses saw. Philip wants to see the glory of God. But herein lies the problem with Philip's request. And that is God was right in front of him. I just can't imagine that. To be sitting at this table... And to be requesting something that's already there. I want to see God. And Jesus looks at him and says, If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. What a mysterious indwelling within the Godhead. Richard, Richard Phillips says, If Philip had understood Jesus, he would have comprehended the Father in Christ. And so there he is. Show us the Father. Seems like a good request. Seems like the kind of thing Moses would ask. And Jesus just says, if you have seen me, 
you've seen him. But you know, when we think about our own experience as Christians, so many people make this kind of request of God. I remember being very young and, and begging God as I'm laying in my bed, I'll believe if you show up in here. And we're so prone to that. We want that. We long for that. We want to see Him. We want to see God. I want to see God. Do you want to see God? I want to see Him. I want to, to, to lay my eyes on whatever He allows me to lay my eyes on so that I can get, even if it were being hidden in the cleft of the rock and some kind of glory passing by, I want to see something of God. I think that is a longing of the human heart, a longing of the Christian heart, that we long to see God. We want to look at Him. And here, Philip has the same longing that we have. It's just completely misunderstanding that God is sitting in front of him. Because you know, when we go to glory someday, we are going to experience what we call the beatific vision. And that your own eyes, if you are a Christian, your own eyes are going to lay eyes on Jesus. You're going to have then what Philip had here. It's remarkable. But notice the response of Christ in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? This is a clear rebuke from Jesus to Philip. It is a pastoral rebuke to a confused man. Remember in chapter 13 when Jesus referred to the disciples as his little children? And he is. He's treating Philip like a little child here, and he's engaging him as a confused, small child. You notice he doesn't browbeat him. He is not cruel to him, but a gentle rebuking tone is clearly here. But what is Jesus doing? As one person said, he is reminding Philip that he is the one who reveals God. He reveals him. And you know, the rest of the New Testament bears this out. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 1, he says, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so in these first few verses, you have the word seen used three times, but in our next couple verses, we have the word believe several times. Notice in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. What a question. Philip, do you even understand the perichoresis? Do you even understand that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? You simply cannot make this claim unless you are God. You cannot make the claim that you are in the Father and that the Father is in you unless you are actually Him. 
That there is an unmistakable, eternal indwelling of the Father and the Son. And what are the results of this eternal indwelling of the Father and the Son? Jesus brings out two things here. He says, His words and His works. Who does He attribute His words and His works to? The Father. How can He do that? And how can He do that in, in the level of it being the level it's at, of 100% of fullness, that He's fully revealing the works and the words of the Father because He is indwelling the Father and the Father is indwelling Him. So He attributes it to His Father. Now consider that when He was a little boy and He's at the temple and He's confounding all of these religious rulers with how much He knows. Well, if they were in the Father and the Father was in them in the same way with Jesus, of course. But there He is. His words and His works being attributed to the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of the Father. So therefore, what? What He says in verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak of My own initiative. So the very words that He is speaking, He is speaking on the initiative of the Father. The works that He has done are upon the initiative of of the Father. The, the words that Jesus spoke flowed from the eternal reality and the eternal relationship that He is in the Father and that the Father is in Him. He goes on to talk about His works and says, the Father abiding in Me does His works. Isn't that amazing? That we, we talk about the miracles of Christ, yet Christ references His miracles as of the Father. One author summarized it this way. Start with either my word or my works, Jesus says, and you will see that they are of God. Implied then is this, my person is of God and is God. But notice how Christ closes this in verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Do you believe Him? Do you believe Him? For these disciples on this night, although it was apparently not altogether clear to them yet, they would soon know and see and believe exactly what Christ is teaching them here. And of course, the question has to be, do we know and see and believe what they would come to know and see and believe? Do you know Christ? If you do, subsequently you know the Father. And if you know the Father, then you have seen Him in the way that He intends for you to see Him. And that is with believing eyes. That is with eyes of faith. And so believe Christ, that He is in the Father, and that the Father is in Him. But come back and think about this person, Philip, for a minute. Philip asks the question of Christ, asking to see the Father, right? He puts himself out there and actually asks the question to see the Father. And what is very obviously apparent in regard to Philip? It's apparent that he eventually did get all of this straight. Very soon, Philip would, be, would gain the footing that he needed. And along with the other men who were around this table on this night, he would very soon be understood to be the Apostle Philip. 
But you know, we don't know much about the rest of Philip's life and how the rest of his life panned out, but we do understand some things via tradition. And that tradition tells us that Philip carried the gospel all the way to France. And then he came all the way back east to Turkey, bringing the gospel along with him all along the way. And as the story goes, Philip got so many priests riled up that they decided to stone him. And they stoned Philip within an inch of his life. And then they took Philip and then they hung him on a cross. And can you imagine what it must have been like when Philip stood before his Savior once again and he got to the Father's house that Jesus had just taught about, understanding better than he had ever understood before that to follow Jesus is to follow the way, the truth, and the life. And that it would lead to the place that Christ had prepared for him, the Father's house. And that to know Christ is to know the Father. I trust that you too would know this. Let's pray.